hello and welcome back to another episode of the Millennial Crisis Podcast. This week, I chat with Deletta, who is a creative hustler that is really working on finding the balance between achieving her ambitious career goals and also staying mentally well. Like many of us in our 20s and 30s, Deletta has been on this self-discovery journey and has some really amazing advice on what she's learned along the way. Although she has big dreams and ambitions to be this boss-ass chick that she has always dreamed of, she knows that her mental health and wellness are really important. And this is one of the big things that we discussed today. I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation. So let's jump straight into episode 34 of the podcast, The Balance Between Ambition and Self-Care. Thank you so much for joining me on the Millennial Crisis Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today. Demi, the pleasure is mine. Thanks so much for having me. I start off every podcast with the same three boring questions and I always think about changing them, but I think I've done this from the beginning. Let's stick with it. Let's feel the vibe. And those questions are, what is your name? age and what do you do? Okay, cool. My name is Diletta Lagoa. I'm 26 years young. <laughs> I work as a marketing and partnerships coordinator at a university startup program called Spark Deacon at Deacon University. But outside of that, I'm also a freelance designer, creative strategist. I run my own podcast, which I only started recently. And I also am a leader in a youth organization called Global Shapers. Amazing. She does it all, right? That's so much. How do you keep up with all of these hats? I, I'll be honest, it's not easy. And, you know, this is something that I work on continuously. The most recent strategy I applied was recommended by my therapist, actually, where I kind of like just audited all my current engagements and activities. I put it onto something like a spreadsheet on Notion, which is an awesome tool that I've been loving. And I ranked everything based on a set of metrics. So I had like value, um, the financial benefit of doing something, the career growth, and like just the happiness and joy and enjoyment that I get out of those things. And, and then I would kind of cull and make decisions based on how people how things rate wow that's that's such a great exercise I feel like it's something I need to do it it makes a lot of sense especially when we feel as though we need to do all the things and sometimes I'm I'm re-reading for our work week and he talks about like being busy versus being productive I remember when I first read that it hit me really hard because I was like yeah we're always busy but like how much of that stuff is actually propelling us to the places we want to go? So I guess it's kind of a similar thing. How did you find that process? I I think it was just from a simple conversation with my therapist where she initially just suggested I listed it down and I'm used to like building out CRM lists for work. So I, I kind of just borrowed some of that ideology into building my own sheet. The other thing I was viewing it kind of like cash flow into a business, but like it's energy flow, you know, and like there's only so much that you can afford at one time. Um, otherwise it's not feasible. And I have experienced burnout. I have end up disappointing people from over committing in the past. So it's also learning from some of the past experience where I have fucked up um, or, you know, overloaded myself that I've been able to 
have the motivation to establish this, put it in place and try to stick to it. And I use the word try because it's a constant, you know, process. For sure. I, I really like that you mentioned overcommitment and letting people down with that because I think it's something that so many of us experience and so like I think so many of us are on both ends of that a lot of the time sometimes we might say something to a friend or a colleague or whoever it may be that yeah I'll help you with this and then you realize I actually have no time to do that or I don't have the energy to do that and then the other side of it as well and and it's taken me a while to I guess have compassion for people for that and also realize that I do it often as well like we say a lot with great intentions but then we realize it's actually not going to work and sometimes I feel like if we don't understand that we can often either resent people for doing it or resent ourselves for making that commitment in the first place what's your Mm. experience been with that and how long did it take you to kind of realize that sometimes you were taking on too much Yeah, I mean, the really obvious evidence would be not meeting deadlines or having to push things back. Or I would actually feel it in my body as well in the way that this, I guess, sense of like bubbling or anxiety began to creep up on me before I needed to speak on the phone with someone or report back to them, update them on this thing that we were doing. And after, you know, a few conversations with people about it, I finally decided to just be honest and pull back and step back from a few things. And I actually did that in the last two months. There were two or three projects that I took a step back from or um, resigned from entirely. And each of those experiences was met with understanding from the other party, which surprised me, even though, you know, I know people are nice and I know that I've chosen to work with nice people you still have this fear of like oh they're gonna think I'm a cop out or I'm gonna disappoint them and I hate disappointing people I'm such a people person Um, but it was just really nice and reassuring to have their support as well and I think people actually respect it when you own up to you know what you can or can't do and you're realistic about what you're able to manage because that that way you know it's it just yields better work outcome as well when everyone's realistic. I couldn't agree more when you said about honesty in the workplace and and just saying, because I say all the time, like I would so rather a client or a manager or someone, a colleague say to me, this is too much or we're not actually going to hit this or Demi, you're being ridiculous with the timeline you're setting for this. And and us to be able to work through that or to combat that, that versus coming on the day or a day after saying this isn't going to work honesty and transparency and conversations like that are so so important and I guess it takes time to learn those things right oh 100% easier said than done for sure we've skipped over the first question because I got caught up in in your answers already I've introduced a new kind of section to to the podcast and it's I asked people when they were younger what was your dream career? How young is young? I'd say primary school age or below. Okay, okay. I've had a few different phases, but the key ones in primary school were pianist and detective. Okay, I love them and I love how on the other side of the spectrum they are as well. What do you think it was about them that kind of drew you towards it? Mm, well, I did piano lessons growing up. I had, you know, the typical kind of 
parents who were super ambitious and enrolled me to all these after school things. And between and piano, obviously piano was the more highly favored activity. So I I imagine that that might be a fun career path to go down at some point. But when I hit year three, I was reading a comic book series called Detective Conan. I forget whether it's Japanese or Korean, but I had a big crush on the detective who was a man initially, but he got turned into a child. And I started collecting everyone's fingerprints in class. So I had a book um, covered in like Takam powder fingerprints of all my classmates. That's amazing. I love that. Uh, the, the second, the secondary mm-hmm. part to the question is when you got into high school and university, what did you tell people you wanted to do? So it might not necessarily be what you actually wanted to do, but what you told people when you got the question, like, what are you going to, what are you going to do next? What's happening? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't actually have a solid memory of it, but creative practice was huge for me in high school. I spent a lot of my time in the art room and I spent a lot of my time writing. So I imagine it would have been something like artist. I feel like that's also something and I could be wrong here, but that's something that's quite brave, I would say, to say. And this could just be perhaps the environment that I grew up in that creative jobs weren't kind of real jobs. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like they can sometimes get a bad rep because it's like, oh, the struggling artist and all of those things. So what was the environment for you growing up and what were those kind of boundaries for you? Did you ever feel as though it was difficult to share that? kind of ambition with people? Mm, it, it was actually really easy for me in high school. So I I, I actually r- quite admire my younger self and I don't think I'm as daring today now that, you know, I, I take more things into consideration before making decisions or even starting things. But I had very much a fuck it, fuck the world attitude in high school. And I don't know what I would attribute it to. I, I I was really lucky to have had a quite a global upbringing. So I lived in a couple of countries growing up and that was across Indonesia, the United States and Australia. And when I was in high school, I was mainly in Indonesia and my parents are Catholic. I went to a Christian international school. So the social expectations and behavioral expectations around me were like quite on the conservative side. And I took the opposite I guess, path of just saying, fuck it all. I'm going to, you know, be this like dark anarchist scene kid. And I mean, by dark, I meant I listened to My Chemical Romance and Fall Out Boy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's that's really cool. And and I think it's it's so interesting to hear how people's upbringings can shape their career choices and their pathways and stuff and I feel we all kind of get to this eventually whether it's 50 and you're having a midlife crisis or you're having a quarter life crisis or it's something in high school or primary school that kind of gives you that fuck it attitude right where you just Mm. go for gold it doesn't really matter does it yeah and I think that's um I think it's really interesting to hear when that happens to people I can't say it was very wise though I was it was very much pushed by rebellion. And I think that would be the word I would use to describe my days in high school. But I, I'm really grateful for them because I actually had like great advocates in the school, teachers who were on the more progressive side who would, 
you know, defend me, even if I end up in the principal's office a few times, they would still give me that attention and push to thrive in the different fields that I wanted to pursue. So I would, yeah, I, I'm so grateful for them. So then how did you move from being and, and wanting to be this art rebel <laughs> into moving into working with startups? And although you have a lot of kind of creative and design flair, there's a lot of other aspects to the work that you're doing now. So how was that kind of transition for you and what was that path? Yeah, for sure. It's it's a bit of a story. Are you happy for me to share it? Yes. Okay, <laughs> cool. Well, I, so I actually went to pursue painting as my undergraduate degree, and I started that at 16. I, we had just moved to the Philippines, and the option was to do year 12 at an international school, which my parents couldn't afford, or to go to undergrad immediately, because according to the Filipino academic system, high school ended in year 11. So by that um, I was eligible to start uni then. So I just went for it. My parents were like, you're young. If you change your mind, you can go and do something else. And I was really lucky that, you know, they were willing to invest in, in that for me and they had set money aside to put me through school. And after I graduated from my undergrad, um, I was like, oh shit. Like, so the Medici family aren't around anymore, nor are they sponsoring, patroning the arts. So I guess I'll just become a graphic designer, which I actually really enjoyed. Um, and I learned, I enjoyed what I learned in the graphic design space, except the company that I worked for, I wasn't entirely inspired by. I guess they weren't as open-minded as I imagined, like the company I wanted to work for would be. So I, and this was a pretty tumultuous time for me. I was going through like a transition. I decided to move back to Indonesia. And when I went back, I actually worked as a communications officer at that high school that I went to and it was hilarious wow. because all the old teachers I knew they were like oh my god you were that like dark rebel kid and now here you are reading books to the third graders and I just thought it was hilarious and I took a lot of pleasure in that but what I also discovered there was that I really valued being a part of I guess an organization that was driven by purpose. And in that case, it was educating young people and empowering young people to be, you know, just smart and good adults, hopefully. And so after I identified that I, and my parents were always really, um, I, I think you get the idea that they're pretty ambitious at this point. So they, they always pushed me to do my post-grad and I decided to, pursue a master's of international development in Australia. I failed to get a scholarship. And so we had some support from my mom's brother who helped put me through school and sent me to Melbourne as well. Initially, they were trying to push me to pursue international affairs, which is what my dad did. And that's how he moved around so much. He's a diplomat. And I went for the grassroots approach because I didn't see myself working for government. And my goal with international development, ideally, was to pivot towards a not-for-profit world. But after graduating that, I, I struggled to get a job with not-for-profits or NGOs. I had a casual role at a youth-led not-for-profit. And so I supported myself by starting my own design business. Um, and I picked up a couple of clients, but I made the conscious decision that I would only work with purpose-driven clients. So that meant working with not-for-profits, social enterprises, and ethical businesses. And that's how I met Daisy, who is my manager at Spark Deacon, um, one of my clients. 
hosted um actually ran a podcast as well they're called the humans purpose podcast and they hosted this party and i spoke to daisy and we connected on linkedin and i you know that's how a lot of people get hired today through linkedin which is cool and she she was the one who introduced me to the whole innovation entrepreneurship world and i got hired out, out of my business about six months after meeting her that's awesome what a like what a journey right like it's, yeah. it's it's I love hearing the way people got to where they are I just find it so fascinating because I think the assumption is for a lot of people that it's just like this straight line and you kind of get into your career I'm sure you're going to have a lot of other curved lines that are going to lead you to the next through the next five years of your career as well but I just think it's so great for people to be able to hear that you're not you don't have to sit in that cubicle like you can still get to that same place that other people get to it just might be a different kind of path I think that's I think that's really cool you mentioned earlier and I'm so thankful that you did you mentioned that your therapist gave you these exercises I have this like I I run the millennial conversation events and in all of them especially the ones where we talk about mental health in the digital age the idea of therapy the idea that we all have mental health (laughs) that we have to take care of is is a topic that we can speak so openly with in the group but I'll often get messages after say from people saying oh my god I did not know this many people saw a therapist or I did not know this many people were experiencing the exact same things that I am I want to be able to have more conversations like this so how has your mental health journey been? How have you got into a place where you can just drop a word like therapist in? Yeah, thank you for highlighting that and reminding me that it's, yeah, it is quite a journey and I'm happy to share to how, like how I got to this point. I think I took very much a positive psychology approach without knowing it when I was younger. So positive psychology means that we're looking after like, what it means to be well and happy before we get into that point where we're mentally unwell. And this was probably around, this was around that transition period I mentioned earlier when I moved back to Indonesia from the Philippines. It's pretty corny, but I did the whole like eat, pray, love thing in my own country. I went to Bali and I spent like nearly a month there. And the first thing I did was a uh, silent meditation retreat that went for seven days and that was pretty out there for me despite being a yoga practitioner my whole life and that's where I got to I guess meet some of the life traumas and challenges that I had collected and I had the opportunity to work through them then but it wasn't super intense like it didn't actually feel like a big deal then I think I was lucky enough to maybe because I was such a rebel and I was outspoken about the things I was experiencing none of the mental ill health health that I experienced was was bottled up I kind of just like spat it out to the world and probably gave my parents a really hard time but I suppose that made it easier for me to identify those challenges and and then after that Probably the next difficult period for me was when I was going through my postgraduate, my master's, and I saw a therapist for the first time. Actually, they were one of the school counselors, and I found that really helpful because I was 
met with the opportunity to speak to someone who didn't have an interest in my personal life like it was just their job to hear me out and to strategize together with me and I thought like simply put that was super awesome but I think the key most significant stage in my life was when my partner and partner and I had a pretty tough year so this is when I was running my own design business I had an experience with anxiety and he had an experience with depression at the same time and I went to attend a workshop hosted by an organization called Batir. They're quite popular in Sydney, a bit less in Melbourne, but they're a mental health organization for young people. And they're also led by young people. And their whole thing is about stigmatization of conversations around mental health. And in this training, we were taught how to speak safely about mental health, um, you know, like trigger warnings, words to avoid, acknowledging that everyone's experiences is different, but all valid. And that was really empowering because it it normalized it for me. I was in a room with people who had diverse experiences with mental health, and we had the guidance of professional facilitators who equipped us with that language. And since that workshop, I actually got recruited as a volunteer speaker. So I, on behalf of Batir, um, I, I attend their events at schools or at workplaces, and I share my story of mental health. So this was that story of that difficult year my partner and I had with different experiences of mental health. And I think that's when it got um, more comfortable because, well, I got put on stage in a room with like, you know, either 20 to 100 people to talk about my own story. So a bit of baptism by fire, but I felt that ripple effect around my friend groups as well. So that, that's been good feeling like I, I could also introduce it around my peers, around my family. And often it is met with a few raised eyebrows or you can see people are a little bit uncomfortable, but if you just stick with it and do it safely, and that's, I think I'm, I'm not a mental health facilitator, so I won't go too much into how to speak safely about it, but educate yourself on how to do that because I think that will help you become more confident and less attached to, you know, the, the fear of, hurting someone or making someone uncomfortable because it can be done and I think it should be done too. A hundred percent. And thank you so much for sharing that because I do think these conversations are so important and I think it's amazing when we can get to that place where we're able to speak openly about it. And you're so right. It does just become a ripple effect. And as soon as you can be that kind of person, whether it's within your home or in your family um, or in your case, in front of a bunch of students. I appreciate that. And, and I guess when it comes to the workplace and, and mental health there and trying to navigate it all, I know you juggle quite a bit and sometimes things can get overwhelming at times. How Are you at a place now where in the workplace you can feel as though you can let people know about that to say like, listen guys like I'm quite overwhelmed now or is it still like I'm sick today I need it I need a break or nope nope keep pushing on keep pushing on mental health isn't a thing (laughs) yeah I think all three happen but um it's mostly I feel really safe and comfortable in in the team that I work for or work with at Deakin I think it's an exceptional team, however, like we're all, there's, it's a team of three, we're all, you know, 26 and under, and we're all female, and we're, we're all quite comfortable speaking to each other in 
both a professional capacity and as a like human to human peer to peer capacity. So we've, we normalize that culture quite quickly from the beginning. It is harder when larger communities are involved. So, you know, we run a program um, called the Accelerator and, you know, that involves an extra 13 to 20 participants every year. And we're taking these founders through a process of like, taking them to their edge to grow their businesses. So that that's pretty intense. And that's when we find, um, you know, we can't always facilitate that kind, that level of openness. But what we try to do is um, at least normalize it within us as like the leadership team and make the options that they have visible to them. And I think maybe this kind of thinking can be replicated in other places where you might have a group of colleagues where you feel closer and more comfortable to speak to. And if you have the power to normalize or give exposure to these kinds of conversations to people close to you or around you, then I think that's a good way to start. I couldn't agree more and I don't have anything <laughs> else to say about that. I think that's, that's awesome. So what's it like working with startups and in the startup space when you kind of started delving into that I find a lot of people that start or dip their toes into the startup space can't find themselves getting out and they just love the energy in there what's it been like for you what's your experience been Mm, it was really really fun to explore especially at the start in fact when I got the job at Deakin I was telling everyone that I was likening this experience to like an MBA because I got to just like you know, all, all the experiences these founders have, I get to live vicariously through them because the relationship with the founders is so close. I, I really I really appreciate the methodologies that are applied and, you know, used and taught in the startup space because coming from a creative and artistic background, often that is the biggest challenge. We get really caught up in a creative vision and wanting to get something perfect. And there's really good value in that. And I think my goal at the moment is how to balance and marry the two but to bring the focus back to the startup world I I think there's there's a lot to learn but you need to stay grounded with like your purpose and your personal driver and your key values because it's really easy to get caught up in the I guess not, I don't want to say thunderstorm because it's negative. It's kind of just like the the confetti of like the fast paced unicorns and capital raising and all these uh, hackathons and events to attend. And it's very go, 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 more, 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 grow, grow, grow. But you still need to create space to reflect and to do the work purposefully. So I, I think if it's taught me anything, it's kind of like, balance because you can take all those lessons and make them useful in your life and they have been super super useful in mine and I think I've grown so much since delving into this world and I'm so grateful and the people are just so generous and eager to help and I think that's probably why people stay because like you I've never met a community of people who are just so generous and at the same time growth oriented like it's not really competitive like you would imagine the business world to be and there's really tight-knit community of people who just want to support each other 
willing to answer questions, you know, the, yeah, just the crowdsourcing and brain trust of amazing humans is, is probably key to me in like, in terms of like why I love it. It's interesting you say that because like I, I talk about a lot, uh, like a millennial business, which is essentially what you kind of described there, this idea that everyone has to be the next Uber, the next Airbnb, the next tech unicorn or and everyone's in such a rush to get there. And I think sometimes we no longer abide by the idea of working hard to retire. A lot of us as millennials don't see retirement as the goal. So it, it just makes me, I wonder why we're in such a rush when it comes to business. And like, I get it too at the same time because the momentum is important. Like, I mean, you're a digital marketer. So like, I, and I know little about this, but you know, there's like, once you launch something, there's like energy there. And so you want to capitalize on it. And I think it's similar with the growth of a business when it wants to scale. Um, Because all like when you're going through an accelerator program, for example, all this attention is on you. You've got the opportunity to pitch in front of investors and a large audience. And we want to link you up to all these venture capital firms. So you want to take advantage of that. But yeah, I, I completely agree. I, on, from a personal perspective, I, it's important for me to be able to do things thoughtfully and purposefully and to be able to reflect along the way as well. And I think you can still, you can do both. And I think I talk a lot about hustle culture because it was something that I got used to get really caught up in, in, in that kind of thing, always needing to be on the go, 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 do 500 million things. And I think it wasn't until like I slowed down where I was like, oh, there's something to this. Like there's something to just doing you (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. is there any really big kind of lessons you've learned over the years when it comes to your career or anything any assumptions that you had early on that you've burst now yeah I think when I was younger I might I put a lot of value on accolades and titles and brands that you might be associated with like I had friends growing up who you know got to go to school to London and went to LSC or King's College and um, when I was living in the Philippines at the time I felt a little bit insecure about my background and the exposure that you know I thought I had access to and a key learning for me as I got older and started doing things um, via work and freelancing and business and community was that it's it's what you make of it you know you like you don't need to have had all these shiny stars and trophies on the wall or badges on your LinkedIn account or fancy logos I I think the true value is in one's ability to make use of what what they've got in front of them and that's when I compare when I compare myself to like some people who went to those really cool schools at the, the end of the day now I I would still rather be me and you know I, I I don't think it's about I'm doing better than they are it really isn't but I'm I'm just so thankful for the different experiences that I've had because they've made my skill set and my perspective unique How did you get to that point? Because there's some serious self-growth work and like self-love work that has to go into getting yourself to that place. It's not a place that you come to easily. 
Yeah, I think it's the constant mindfulness exercise. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, I went on that seven day silent meditation retreat that was quite influential in my mental health journey. I continue to do that until today. So either I'll go on a seven day one, 10 day one, or three day one, depending on how much time I can afford. And I think that's that experience has really helped ground me in my present moment and just get comfortable in my own skin. So if I can talk a little bit about what goes on in these like 10 day retreats, for example, (laughs) for I guess those people who, uh, listeners who might not be super familiar with them, the most popular stream that happens around, um, that you, you might have access to around the world is Vipassana. And it's on a donation basis. So there isn't a cost attributed, you know, labeled on when you join, but you are welcome to make a donation after you've completed your meditation. So it's purely out of generosity of the heart, which I think it's pretty cute, kind of like lentils as anything. And when you're in this 10 day program, you can't speak, you can't have sex or touch yourself, you can't eat meat. And the idea of that is to let everything that you might have bottled up come to the surface. And so when you're there, you know, all your shit is revealing itself to you. And you, you'll have two moods, like you'll be like hating it completely. And that's what it feels like for, five, you know, three, four days, five whole days. Or and then until you get to this point where you, you just find clarity, because I think that experience or that state that it puts you in when you're completely revealed yourself to yourself, you have the opportunity to like have a conversation with these past traumas or just these little things that might have annoyed you and make sense of them and what the meditation practice teaches you is to the word isn't to overcome but to come to terms with them to just meet them as they are so I think there's often a misconception about meditation that it's about you know being completely quiet and peaceful and zen there's no such thing. Like you're sitting there and your mind will be going a hundred and million miles an hour, especially when you're not allowed to do all those things that I listed earlier. They're going to be even more apparent because the scratch you can't, the itch you can't scratch. And so it's just going to be there. Um, and what it teaches you to do is to, to just check it out and say, I accept and I'm okay. <laughs> And it's so simple, but it's like really, really hard to do. And I think coming back to the question you asked me earlier, like this is probably like what I, this concept is what I try to apply into my day-to-day life and world is to just take the situations that I have in front of me as they are and to groove along with them. I love that. I, I mean, when I was in South America, I did a three-day silent meditation retreat and it was it was sprung on me. Like I was in a program and it was it was I think two days before they were like, surprise, we've done a month of meditation. Now we're gonna do three days of silence. And I was like, I've done a month of 10 minutes a day. Like let's let's like reel it in here. Mm-hmm. And it was really funny when you were kind of explaining you have two moods because I remember at the start I was like, this is okay. Like okay like sure and then I think for the majority of the time I was I hated everyone and everything 
like it was it was like why am I here and and then I had I, and then I found a lot of clarity and and stuff like that and I found it I did not expect the results that kind of happened or I didn't expect the experience to be what it was and I think it is so powerful and I, I think that meditation in itself is just so powerful especially today just for us to take a step back and just be with ourselves like mm. I think I think even to like if I think about like before bed and people going to sleep or people waking up like we fall asleep to shows we fall asleep to podcasts we fall asleep to audiobooks or sounds like it's still not our own minds mm. which I know it's like something that's really big for me like I don't fall asleep until background noise and then I realize like oh I didn't like is that because I'm like avoiding my thoughts? Like what's happening here? So do you practice meditation and how is kind of meditation and these mindfulness practices really shaped your day-to-day life and how do you find time for them? There was an example you just made, oh, about being in that Vipassana program or in a silent meditation program, how it's, it's really unique. We don't, we really don't have it's not, there's not much room for that in day-to-day life. Like the example you made is, is perfect. Like so many of us, um, I mean, I, I made a rule. I don't put my phone in my bedroom anymore. So I I've got like an old school alarm that I just flip over in the morning when it goes off. Um, But we, we really don't have much space to, to face ourselves anymore. We're always, either occupied, busy, or interacting with either technology or other people. And growing up, maybe you and I would have had these experiences to just be bored. But I really worry for like younger people today or like kids today, because I don't know if they they have much opportunity to experience that. But what I wanted to say to answer your question in terms of like how I fit in meditation into my daily life. An interesting thing that they teach us in Vipassana or in these um, silent meditation retreats is to apply this meditative state of presence even when you're not cross-legged on your ass and meditating. Like they were, they would tell us, you know, as you're walking to the dining hall later, can you be conscious about the steps that you take? Can you be conscious about the pace of your breath? And I, I think it, it's really true. And I actually try to do that more consciously now. So for example, um, I mean, meditation to me and, and the practice that I follow is an awareness of my state of mind and my physical body. So for example, I might be walking down the street and I might take a whiff of, you know, some random person passing by and they might smell like, I don't know, my grandmother. And then immediately the, all the memories of my grandmother come back rushing into my body and, and you feel it. And like, maybe you're a little bit scared because like, oh my God, she died like 10 years ago. That's really creepy. And you might feel the pounding in your chest. So I'm now uh, working on being more aware of these physical responses in my body towards external stimulus. And it's the same with unpleasant situations when like, let's say someone says something that pisses me off and I start to feel that hot knot in my throat where I'm not sure whether I'm going to scream or cry at them. And that, that is where the meditation practice 
happens in in these small experiences but to get there you do need to sharpen the blade and it's kind of like this is such an overused line but I think it's a good one it's it's like your mental health is like a muscle you know you you work out to toughen up your physical body so that you can get into these cool poses or do these cool things it's the same with meditation you have to train them and I and I know from my experience that during times where I don't make the time to even meditate if it's five minutes or one minute and I do I do do one minute meditation sometimes to just squeeze it in to just allow myself to ground and meet my state of being it gets better and better and when I don't do it it's really hard and it's really easy to just succumb into that um, physical stimulus and feed it because it's like it's almost like a plant right you can if it starts the seed emerges you can choose to water it and savor in that feeling if it's a positive one or even if it's a negative one to use that anger for good or to use that joy for good or you can just choose to leave it and kill it and then it you know it passes i think meditation for a lot of people can be like this scary kind of word or this out Mm. there word in just like letting yourself just sit with yourself essentially and it's interesting you said about a form of meditation is the walking and just being mindful of the steps you're taking I did this they they call them like PQ reps and it's like positive intelligence where like you do these tiny reps throughout the day where it's like touch the tips of your fingers Mm. and just like feel or like look at something and like at the color in detail and all of this stuff. And I think it's like meditation for like the modern man or the yeah. modern woman, you know, where it's like just take a couple of seconds in your day and do 20, I think it's like 26 reps. And it's just like building those blocks or cutting it down shorter. I love that. I have one more thing to add if that's okay. Yeah, please that's do. That's a bit more on the practical side. A tip I would give to people who would like to explore meditation is to find a teacher or a voice you resonate with because meditation has been taught in so many different ways by so many different people. And I found that the ones that have been most effective for me are the ones that have been taught by people I relate with, or, you know, I appreciate their, um, their values, their tone of voice, or even like their appearance. It might be superficial, but it worked for me. I needed that hook um, for it to work for me. And there's a lot of really, really great teachers out there. And I I definitely recommend picking one and then sticking with a program regularly, even if it's like, uh, you know, 20 day challenge where you do a two minute meditation every day, these little things, and especially if you can do them with your friends, I think it makes it super, super helpful. 100%. Awesome advice. Thank you so much for that. Uh, How how long have you been meditating for? Is this something that you grew up doing? Because you said you, you, you did a lot of yoga. So you've been doing that for a while. I think with yoga comes meditation. They go kind of hand in hand, don't they? So how long have you been practicing for? Yes. um, You're, you're definitely right. There's definitely, there's definitely that like state of meditation and awareness when you are practicing yoga. I think I started doing yoga in late primary school, like year five or year six, because my mom did it. She was never really big on it either. She just had a gym pass. And so she would go to the yoga classes sometimes, but it, something about it really stuck with me. 
And I started doing it regularly since I was probably about 16 and I'm 26 now. So that was about 10 years ago. And in terms of like the more reflective practice and meditation, being raised Catholic, I like prayed every night. I was very disciplined about that. Uh, I'm not Catholic anymore. Um, but that was, I think, a good practice in like daily reflection, thinking about the things that you're grateful for, reflecting on the things that you want. And, you know, being an artist as well, there was a lot of quiet time locked up in my room. So I think that's where the seeds began to get planted for me. It's it's interesting that you say that because I draw, I I often say to people that like, meditate like the fact that all of these kind of spiritual practices are becoming more and more common in the the modern day and I often say like meditation is what prayer was in religion like it was sitting in silence practicing gratitude and all those kind of things or Mm. people now refer to the universe instead of God I just think we're still looking for that something it's just a a different form and I, I I don't know I just feel like that's so interesting now that it's just got a different form but people can still look at two different worlds when they're kind of one in the same exactly I mean I'm I'm free thinking like agnostic now but I was really um, interested in studying religion when I was younger especially when you know I, I grew up Catholic but I was really interested in and I was really interested in theology so I did like four semesters of that in uni wow. and after studying theology um like while I was studying theology, I read the Quran and there's this passage and it talks about how God or religion is like the ocean. Sorry, God is like the ocean and religion is like the well, the different wells that you can draw the same water from. Mm. And I think it's a great analogy for what you're describing. Yeah, for sure. It's, I, it's the same as like with people. I think it's the same with everything. Like everything is kind of all intertwined in some way and we all think we're a lot more different than we actually are we're getting towards the end and Mm -hmm. I have three questions that I ask all of my guests at the end of each episode and I'm really interested to hear what your responses will be so let's jump straight into them the first question I have for you is what is the first small step you took to get to where you are right now the first step for me, and this is pretty core to my attitude towards life, is to step outside your wherever you are, your comfort zone. Like if you if you want something to change and you want to move forward, you've got to take that step. And um, for me, the first one that I think a really significant one was moving to Melbourne having lived in Asia for the past, um, having lived in the Philippines specifically for the past three, four years before moving to Melbourne, I was feeling like I needed exposure. I needed to broaden my perspective. And it was really hard with the environment that I was in. It's not about the Philippines or about the people, it's just the environment I was in and what I was, what I had exposure to. And I needed to get out of that. So I think the first step is a bit like, you know, get out of your comfort zone, put yourself out there into the big, wide, scary world, even if it, you know, makes you nervous. That's that's a good thing. I love that one. And I love that you specified that it wasn't necessarily, it, it was your environment, 
because I think everyone has their own environment, whether it's good, bad, whatever. And it's so important to see another perspective or another view on the same world. So important. Yeah. The next question I have for you is what is the, what is your biggest millennial crisis right now? And I define a millennial crisis as a privilege problem that consciously or subconsciously affects your mental health or well-being. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, actually, I've got one. It's it's a pr- it's a bit of a heavy one. I <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's a privilege problem because you know it's it's unique to a lot of people today to live outside of your hometown or where you are from. And the, the thing that I'm experiencing right now that does impact my mental health sometimes is like my distance from my family and like realizing, you know, that my parents are aging. Uh, I've had a conversation about this with a few different friends and a few people relate to it as well. Like just, you know, you, you want to do your thing. You want to make your own life and hustle and career. And sometimes that doesn't happen where your roots stemmed from yeah that's a really good one and I think a lot of people can relate to that and I think sometimes it's guilt or like am I being selfish and all of these thoughts can kind of roll Mm. through our minds when it comes to these situations so that that's a really good one thank you thanks for sharing that one the last question I have is what is one thing you still want to explore or are curious about I like your questions, Demi. Like, <laughs> seriously, kudos to you. I really like them. And I'm just buying myself time now. <laughs> Curious about that I want to explore. There is an obvious one, which is, um, and I've been feeling it in my body a lot more significantly lately. And I want to give voice to it because for a lot of women who are pursuing careers, I think this is a bit of a contentious topic. And that is um, like motherhood. I have no idea of like what kind of mom I want to be or when I want that to happen. But I do feel that like, and I never thought I would, I was always that person who didn't want to have kids. I know I'm not even sure I really want to have kids yet, but like there is this maternal instinct in my body that is curious about the experience of reproducing. (laughs) And can can I like do a plus one on that? Please do. At the same time, I want to know what it feels like to be like a boss ass CEO for a large company or a large organization. So these are the two things that like I'm curious about exploring and I would like to do in my life at some point. I love that. That's really cool. And I love that you mentioned the motherhood first and then the CEO, because then I imagined you like in this huge boardroom, like with a baby, like on a call or whatever. Like, I think that's so good. And I think it says a lot about like the modern day woman and the fact that like shit like motherhood, like doesn't stop people from still having ambitions and and all of those things. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. I'll be sure Um, to send you a selfie from my boardroom with baby in hand. I'll I'll even have like be breastfeeding. I love it. I love it. We love to see breastfeeding (laughs) boss moms on, on Instagram. You have a, do you have a challenge for everyone? We spoke about a bit of a challenge, right? Yeah. What is the challenge that you'd like to set for everyone listening? Yeah, I I wish I had spoken a bit more about the backstory, but I'll just quickly do it because it's relevant to the challenge. Now, when I had that really difficult year 
and for me it was with anxiety my therapist guided me through I think it's called like externalizing and so we named this experience that I was having um so for me in my body it manifested as like a constant feeling of being chased and a constant feeling of not being good enough and it was debilitating like I couldn't work I couldn't get myself out the door and if I did I would like sit in the tram stop crying and then get to work and just flick through tabs mindlessly and it was awful and I named this feeling shark and what I did with my therapist was identify all those times that I experienced shark you know in attendance or joining me and I end up recruiting my friends as well in like identifying shark spottings and it actually made me more resilient and in this relates to the mindfulness like we were talking about that awareness of being able to spot the physical reaction to an emotion or a stimulus and so it was like a year of shark spotting for me and it simply put it is naming a negative thought pattern um, and externalizing it. So my challenge is if you experience something similar, if there is a negative thought pattern that you have been experiencing consistently, can you name that thing? Mm. And then the bonus task in on top of the task is recruit other people to help you spot that thing. Um, so mine is Shark. My sister's one is Fred, which was a really bad name that she came up with on the spot, but it just stuck. <laughs> uh, I'm curious to know what yours will be. I love it. That's so good. So like, um, you know, I'm not good enough or I'm not doing this fast enough. I'm stupid. You know, I can't do this, all of those things. And then as soon as those frames come up or a similar phrase comes up, you say, that's Ned, Fred shark that's I love not me that's shark. Because, yeah <laughs> I love yours because it's shark spotting I love that you said shark spotting yeah. I think I think that's really good and I love the recruitment of people too because we often like vent to our friends and they'll be like oh you know you you know that's not true like you're the best la 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 instead they can say yeah. like, that uh shark's talking again like what's happening yeah. Well, that exact line was said by my friend Vindia, who I recruited in my journey. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. And I can't wait to do that one. Thank you so, so much for, for coming on and being so open with your story. And I can't wait to see you on Instagram breastfeeding in a big <laughs> office with city views or something um and I'm sure that is not too far away I know like your your path has been uh curvy to get to where you are now and I can see it just being like this huge like trajectory to to where you want to go and I have no doubt that you will get to exactly where you want to or where you're meant to be right so thank you so much for coming on if people want to check out your podcast or check out some of your work where is the best place for them to do that for sure and Demi thank you so much for having me you're phenomenal and you're so great to talk to I've like genuinely really really enjoyed this chat today so oh good I'm glad thank you (laughs) and in terms of where to find me I'm on Instagram at Diletta Lagoa I'll get Demi to type that up in the show notes because it is a bit of a mouthful or diletta.com.au is my website 
Amazing. And if people want to listen to Sana Sini, which is your podcast, what can they expect? And who are the people that would really love to listen or get some great value from your podcast? For sure. So Sanasini is an exploration of creativity and how it shows up in different professions. And the audience that I'm speaking to and, you know, the guests I'm getting on the show specifically live in Australia or Indonesia. And the reason behind this is because I wanted to bridge the gap between the two countries. It's a little bit selfish on my part because I left Indonesia, but I want to stay connected. And I think there's so much amazing stuff happening in the two countries that I think could have more exposure to one another and Sanasini is available wherever you listen to your podcasts amazing please do go check that out and I love the videos and the little audio clips that are coming out from the Sanasini podcast I think it they're so cool and I've said it to you so many times I was like oh my god these look fantastic please check that out and all of Jaletta's links will be in the show notes below so thank you again for coming on I'll speak to you soon Prima Cassie. Oh, I love. <laughs>